And so today, uh, for the next couple of weeks, I do want you to know that in a couple of few weeks, uh, probably um, sometime in May, I uh, told you been thinking about working on, we're going to be doing a series of studies through the book of First John. And after studying it some and spending some time with it, uh, Dick Greenlee's going to be working with me. We're going to be not co-teach at the same time. Well, that would be dangerous to have us both up here at the same time. But uh, Dick will be taking some of the assignments. But really, the kind of the idea of that First um, John is written to Christians for a degree of certainty. You can go look at this later, but maybe in the fifth chapter when he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a pretty powerful statement, that kind of purpose statement to say, I'm writing this book, I'm writing these things, so you'll know. How can you know? Can you know? What's the basis of knowing? All those, those kind of things. So we're really going to kind of be dealing with what I call Christian certainty. Christian certainty. We'll be studying that. But in the meantime, and I try to occasionally uh, follow the church calendar, uh, I think it's important for us to kind of know what's going on. We're working our way toward Pentecost. I told you now. Uh, that is the final step, the apex, the actual event of God's redemption being brought to fulfillment. As wonderful as Easter is, it's great. It couldn't happen without it. But Pentecost is the goal of God's opportunity or, or God's activity and God's work. And so what I'd like to do now is kind of walk us there, if you will, by some resurrection realities. Uh, that's the title we're going to be working on here on your handout today, some, some resurrection realities realities. It's a great thing to celebrate Easter. It's a great thing to um, uh, uh, go through all the, the wonderful pageantry and all the songs and the music and the teaching and all those kind of things. But there are some realities about resurrection. There are some realities that aren't just simply located in Easter. I was thinking about that. Uh, I, <laughs> a while ago, I was saying to Becky, I said, you know, um, I thought about this morning and uh, the last uh, three days I've preached three times and driven 750 miles. Um, and I said, I thought I was going to go to class today and teach my favorite lesson when I'm really tired, Bible verses that have meant a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs> and what that teaching is, is I read a verse and say, that verse has meant a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then read another one and say, this verse has meant a lot to me. <laughs> you know, I said, or the reality is, I remember when I was 35 or 40, I could do that. I woke up this morning, I didn't know where I was, <laughs> right? Are, are you dealing with the realities of aging? <laughs> yeah. Are, are, you, are you facing that? I, I've been insulted a little bit. I went to the Southwest Airlines. I was going to go on the company plane the other day, and I was uh, looking at some uh, tickets, and there's a new tab for me to click now. It's not adult. <laughs> Senior. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of offended. Yeah. And there's not much of a discount. That's, that makes it worse. The, the reality. You know, I, I, I thought of this little picture here. You're just one, now one step closer to the senior citizen discount at the movies. <laughs> that, that's the reality. Uh, my energy level, can you, I know some of y'all think I'm too ADD. Is it, can you, you should have seen me when I was 30. <laughs> if you think this is exciting or you think this is energetic, uh, yeah, you, you should have seen me at 30. In fact, I had a person say to me one time, you'll never live to be 40 because you're killing yourself right now. But the realities of life, we've got them, right? We know that. The realities of aging, we know, we know the realities of retirement, we know the realities of raising kids, that sometimes what's projected or talked about isn't the reality. And then we finally run into it. 
That's what I tell my students. I say, that's what finally happens when you keep putting things off and putting things off and things come unglued. That's called reality. <laughs> so what are some resurrection realities? What are some of the things that should matter to us, not only on Easter, not just in that wonderful uh, wind-up with Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, but also on Easter, but now as we move toward Pentecost. So what we're going to do over the next several weeks is look at some resurrection appearances where Jesus shows up resurrected. So if you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 20, go to your table of contents. That's where all the pages are listed. Uh, don't ever try to find books of the Bible. If you don't know where that's okay, 1008 in my Bible, John chapter 15, uh, 20 rather, John chapter 20. And uh, we're going to look here uh, into uh, what I'm calling again, here it is, resurrection realities, resurrection uh, realities. <clears throat> now, let me uh, say a few things here uh, at, at the beginning uh, about this. The reality of the resurrection stories is they have what I would call the features of reality. Let me say that again. I think the resurrection stories, we're going to look at several of them, they have the feature of reality. Now, how would I say that? Well, several, there's a couple of, of if you will, pieces here, and, and there's a good deal more research here if you're interested. But one of the things that has troubled people is there are some differences in the accounts. Uh, but if you read carefully, for instance, in the one we're going to look at in John 20, it looks like Mary is the only one there, right? If you see there on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone had been moved. And it says, verse 2, So she ran and came to Simon and the other disciples whom he loved and said to them, They've moved away the stone, and we don't know where they've laid him. Well, there's somebody with her, <laughs> right? You don't use the word we if there is somebody else there. Some of these distinctions or some of these differences, when you read carefully, aren't as remarkable as you would imagine. And here's what suggests that the resurrection has some historical reality or have the features of reality. They're not identical. They're identical. You know, some people will say in one of the Gospels, there's two angels at the tomb. and another one, there's one angel. And I've always said, I think you're missing the point. Dead guy is alive. <laughs> okay, we're not counting angels here. Okay, that's not the point. There's somebody that was dead who's no longer here. And even if you've done a little study on this, Lee Strobel, who was an investigative reporter and an attorney, um, uh, for uh, the Chicago Tribune, who was an atheist, uh, became a follower of Jesus, did the case for Christ, the case for faith. I'm sure many of you are, are familiar with it. That, that, that Strobel said as he studied it as an investigative reporter, he, he investigated the mob in uh, Chicago. Uh, he investigated several high-profile criminal cases that he said all of these stories had the, the, the feature of reality because they weren't identical. He said whenever people get together to testify about something, if all their testimony is identical, then you know they've been working together to get their story straight. So the, the lack of identical matters of every feature. However, again, I'm saying when you read them a little more closely, those pieces are still there. A second feature, I would say, that bring these resurrection stories to reality is that the heroes, who they're supposed to be, the men disciples of Jesus, are anything but heroic. 
They are not seen as anyone that you would want to say by, the, by their response to the resurrection, they should become the leaders of the church, right? Who should become the leaders? The ladies. <laughs> They're the ones that follow Jesus all the way to the tomb and show up on Easter morning. And so the, the heroes, if you will, uh, who's supposed to be the leaders of this are, if you will, not there hiding. We're going to look at that here in a moment. But the ones who are supposed to be the heroes aren't. Now, one of the features of propaganda, one of the, one of the features of uh, material like that is that you always make the heroes or the leaders look good in the light of trouble and difficulty. So it doesn't have that feature. So there's several things here I would say. If you're interested, you can do some more research. Uh, uh, E.P. Sanders uh, and uh, Lee Strobel and other... E.P. is no relation, by the way. I wish he was. He's a brilliant scholar. Uh, maybe somewhere down the line. I don't know. But uh, uh, Lee Strobel about these. Uh, the world's probably leading Christian authority on the resurrection is a guy named Gary Habermas. H-A-B-A-R-M-A-S. Habermas. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Habermas, Gary, uh, Gary Habermas, and the other great authority uh, is uh, uh, at uh, Denver Seminary is uh, Craig Blomberg. So if you're interested in some of these things, if you have friends that have questions, these are some further details. So Gary Habermas, Lee Strobel, and uh, uh, Craig uh, Blomberg. Uh, so uh, now let's look here, if we will, in this uh, section here on the outline here, on your outline. Number one, the setting of the resurrection reality. Um, notice here it says now, and I just, as I was talking to Becky in the car yesterday, we're driving and, and writing and uh, doing some of this. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb when it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away. The setting here, uh, that's interesting to me. When it says here the first day of the week, that is what day in our calendar? Sunday. Sunday. So, so we've got here that on Sunday morning, it appears before the sun ever came up, uh, that Mary Magdalene is there with Mary, we know the other Mary, on that day. And this becomes an important matter of setting because uh, the early Christians gathered because of the resurrection on Sunday and not the Sabbath. Remember, it was called now because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. It wasn't the Sabbath anymore. The name of, or they didn't worship on the Sabbath. They worshiped on Sunday because it was called what day? The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. In early church history, Sunday becomes the day to worship because it's considered the Lord's Day. That was the time. In fact, I remember kind of a funny story some years ago. I was getting my hair cut or getting ready to get my hair cut. And uh, my barber was working on somebody, and her brother was working on another guy. And this guy was an evangelist in ministry. You could tell because he had the hair. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I told Becky I could have never been on TV. I, I just don't have the hair, man. I mean, don't you? I mean, you got to have it. It's got to be flowing. And uh, this guy was working hard on this evangelist because he had he had the hair. So anyway, there, he, he's giving him a haircut, and and he says to this evangelist. He said, hey, I know you've been involved in ministry and, and like this kind of stuff. And he just, and I, I'm sitting there reading Sports Illustrated, mind my own business, mostly. And, uh, and I heard him say, so why do we worship on Sunday and not the Sabbath? And this evangelist said to him, what are you doing asking a question like that? I just kind of kept reading Sports Illustrated. <laughs> 
and really got after him. And so they finished the haircut and brought in the, the uh, super sweeper to get all the hair out. They'd cut off. <laughs> Took them a while. And I just, I just went over to the guy. I knew him. And I just said, you know, hey, um, I don't mean to be unkind, but the reason I got an answer is because he doesn't know. He just doesn't know. Now, the reason I'm saying that is this. I'll say to Becky sometimes, I think, I don't want to assume anything here. You see, the reason we gather here today is because of Easter. The reason we gather every Sunday is because we're not Old Testament people, or if you will, Sabbath people. We're the Lord's Day people. And so every day we come to church. We don't wait. We don't just talk about resurrection on Easter or Holy Week. We come to celebrate Easter every Sunday to say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. I just want us to capture that again and come back to that. That it's the day the Lord raised, and that's why we celebrate on Sunday. This is the original day. That, so when I come to church or when you come to church, do we come with an awareness, well, I'm going to see my friends or I'm going to church? Or say, no, no. What we're going to do is to celebrate the reality of the resurrection that Jesus did on Easter Sunday those years ago. And we come to celebrate and rely and live in that every day. Do you do that when you come to church? Do I come that, do that when I come every Sunday to say, I'm here on this day? Now, again, people say, well, you could go to church any day. I, I agree with that. I, I, I've done that. I even went to church one Saturday night one time on Easter because I thought it's more likely the real time. See, they're eight hours ahead of us. Oh. <laughs> I'm always thinking, always thinking. Plus, I want to sleep in on Sunday morning. <laughs> right? So, so I'm not saying you can't worship on any day. Colossians says that very carefully in chapter 3. One worships one day, another. But maybe we need to recapture this notion or understanding of what this day really means. And not just on Easter. Does that make sense? Yeah. To, to, to not just think about the resurrection once a year or every once in a while, but be almost, if you will, forcefully reminded that this is the day that we experience and understand and remember our Lord is raised. Now, I, I don't have time, but I, if you will, uh, flip in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. You know, I can't teach without going to Romans. I just, some point. Romans chapter 8. In my Bible, it's 11, 1170. And, and I'd just like for you to meditate on this this week, sort of as a, as a, a, a feature of this, because Paul makes a pretty uh, a powerful argument about this matter. You know, the resurrection isn't just that Jesus rose from the dead. But Paul makes statements in Romans chapter 6 that if we've been buried with him in a baptism like his, we'll be raised in a resurrection like his. Even to the extent, even to the extent that Paul makes these statements, verse 12 of chapter 8. I'm sorry, chapter 8. I'm here. I know it. I got it. 9, verse 9. Verse 9, chapter 8. However, you are not... In the flesh. Huh? Well, we'll have to pack, unpack that sometime. You're not in the flesh. Let me give you the cliff notes on this. Uh, so you're, wake up. Come on. Come on, you're back in church. You're back in church. The cliff notes are this. Life in the flesh is life lived in human power and human ability. 
only. Just living in human power and human ability. It's called in chapter 5 of Romans, life in Adam. That's what it's called. That's the old man you're reading about in Romans 6. So he says, you're no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now this is the takeaway for resurrection. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will give life to your mortal bodies. That's the Christian life. If the spirit of him could raise Jesus from the dead dwells in you. See, that's why we come on Sunday to remember this Jesus was risen from the dead, right? He was risen from the dead. And because he's been raised from the dead, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. We need to remember that. We need to know that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. This is where Christianity breaks away from religion. This is where Christianity breaks away from moralism. This is where Christianity breaks away from principles. This is where Christianity breaks away from just trying to live a good life to this miraculous experience of the spirit of God living in us. And so the setting of this, this Sabbath day. So here, here's what I'd like for you to do or think about this. Come on. What if for the next four Sundays you consciously repeat on your way to church this? We go today to celebrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and what that means in my life. And for the next four Sundays, you just decide that I'm on our way to church. I'm not going to say we're going to church. I'm going to say we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Not just on Easter Sunday, but throughout the year, every Sunday. So here's kind of the setting of that. Uh, second of all, I see here is something is the devotion in the resurrection reality. Uh, devotion. And I'm just drawing this out of uh, these first couple of verses where it says, And Mary Magdalene came while it was still dark. This is the woman who was healed, according to Luke chapter 8, of several demons. Her devotion to Jesus, if you study through the Gospels, is in some sense unparalleled. Uh, as, I, as, as I'm reading through the Gospels and the Gospel accounts, she's one of the people that's at the cross the whole time. She and other women, the disciples have deserted. They're gone. But Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other Mary are there. In addition to that, apparently, as soon as she can get there, she goes to the tomb. Now remember, Jesus, I, I try to help my students understand this. This is where it gets a little, a little tricky. Uh, on This is Friday sundown. Okay? So Jesus is on the cross here, and, and they're, they're taking him off because they say the, the, the Sabbath's going to begin. This is what we consider day one. Jesus is in the tomb before sundown. Okay? Then from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown is the Sabbath, day two. So anytime after Saturday sundown, Jesus can fulfill being in the tomb three days 
and be raised. Now, the problem here for us is with the three-day idea is that we're looking as Americans with our count. This is not the way Jewish people see the calendar. The day starts at sundown, okay? The day starts at sundown. So Friday's all day, all day's going on here. He's in the tomb by Friday. It didn't say three 24-hour periods. It said three days. It didn't say three 24-hour, you know, 70, 76 hours. So he's in the tomb on Friday. That's the first day. Because he gets in there before what? Because at sundown, what starts? Sabbath or Saturday, right? He's in the tomb that time. So anytime after Saturday sundown, the next day begins. So she's there as fast as she can get there. She can't go there on the Sabbath. No one can travel around. But when we get here on any time after Saturday night and apparently early in the morning, she's there. Mary's devotion to Jesus. Others were paralyzed. Others were unwilling to go. But you see, it's like this. I think here in this matter, I think I've got this on your outline, this. The men are shown to be paralyzed with dread. They are. Look, you can look over here at verse 19 in chapter 20. So when it was evening on that first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Mary's come to them. She's out and about. They're hung up in a, in a, in a, in a, in a house. They got the door slammed. That, that the disciples, the men, are shown to be paralyzed with dread. And this is what I see in Mary. The women are shown to be present because of devotion. The women, the women are present. See, so it says there, Mary's there when they go tell the story. We don't know where he is. We, Mary, Mary, Magdalene, and Mary, the other Mary. This is interesting to me that, that, that she is there because of this incredible devotion to Jesus for what he had done in her life, of how he had delivered her. Luke tells us from seven evil spirits. And so we look in this matter here where this idea of this devotion that causes her. Some have suggested that, you know, the, uh, the disciples are just scared to death and are going to get killed if they get found, perhaps. But these women followed Jesus through Galilee and back down to Jerusalem at the same time. When I look at this, I just see a person whose devotion has driven them. Devotion has driven her there. And so this suggests, if you will, some matter here of her love for Jesus. You know, look at this verse later. It's found in Luke 7, 47. Uh, it says this. It, it, it's always been interesting. This is not Mary. This is the woman that comes and anoints Jesus' feet. And um, uh, Jesus, uh, the, Simon the Pharisee is incensed about it. And, and Jesus said, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. And then Jesus makes this fascinating statement. He who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Mary, if you will, if you want to talk about this uh, exorcism of evil spirits or whatever it is, must be, have some sense of her being forgiven, of her being delivered. And I've wondered about that at times, our devotion. It's directly correlated to our sense of need. You see, to who is forgiven much, they, what? Love much. So, so our love for Jesus 
is correlated in my, in my mind. It's correlated with how much do I realize I've needed to be forgiven. Now, I'm not talking about where I'm just living like a yahoo running around town. I'm talking about where I've realized that Jesus came and saved me and forgave me and set me up on a solid rock. To whom people are forgiven much, they love much. Sometimes when I'm, my devotion is sort of waning or, or not where it probably ought to be, sometimes I'll just revisit, Lord, what you've done for me. I'll, I'll just go back and say, okay, you've been this for me. You've done this for me. You've been this for me. So Mary's devotion is something I think we should at least take a look at. I'd ask your, you and I ask me again, is devotion born out of duty? Or is devotion born out of fear? Or is devotion born out of gratitude? It's got to be. I, I don't think you are going to be devoted to Jesus if it comes out of fear or duty. Devotion is not, it doesn't work that way. Devotion doesn't work that way to say it's, I'm devoted out of a sense of gratitude. So here she is with one other person, at least other Mary, while it's still dark. And so they come into the tomb or they, and he's already taken away. Verse two. So he ran, uh, she ran and came to Simon and Peter and the other disciples who Jesus loved and said, they've taken the, uh, taken him away and we don't know where he is. So Peter and the other disciples went forth and they were going into the tomb. Verse three, four, the two were running together and the other disciple ran faster. It's fascinating. Some of the detail that John puts in here, I think, oh, why do we need to know that? <laughs> you know, why do we need to know that? But it's detail. I want to look at what this detail means. Then Peter came to the tomb first. Or the, or, and then Peter came to the tomb. And stooping in, looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. This is John. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying there with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, this is John, this is how John refers to himself, who had first come into the tomb, then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again. So the disciples went away again to their homes. Now, I want to look at this here because I, I think it's uh, interesting, the details. I, I, I scoured uh, my research like that. I, it's, it just seems to be John's interest to give detail. Who got there first? <laughs> Who went in first? Uh, it's not hard to imagine that Peter would be the one that would barge in, right? Yeah, you, don't, you don't have any trouble believing that. Uh, John is more reticent, a little more reserved. He's not going to go in there first. Peter does. And then this, the details here, the clothing. Now, um, you know, I, I tell my students, not everything on the internet is true. I know you know that because Abraham Lincoln said that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I read that in the paper. And uh, there are some fantastical kind of things that are made about this. But John, I think, is doing this here. When you talk about they come in, their linens, they're rolled up, they're in place, and this napkin for the head, if you will, is folded. Uh, I've read things on the internet that I go, okay, where is that found in rabbinical teaching? Where is that found in the Talmud? Where is that found? And it just isn't. Some of these ideas that Jesus folded this thing, so he says he's coming back, and I'm thinking, okay, so this is the sign when somebody dies and raises from the dead again that they're coming back. 
who else has done that? <laughs> you know? You read that on the internet like, okay, when Jesus folded it, now he folded it in such a way that people that die and raise from the dead are saying, I'm coming back. Uh, I don't think that's happened before. Even Lazarus had to unwind him. I'm just telling you where my mind goes. Right now, it's in Joplin, Missouri, trying to come back here. So be nice. What uh, I think, and I told Becky this, we were driving along and doing some research. What, what this suggests is an orderly tomb. Because there was, over time, a theory that Jesus' body was gone because of grave robbers. This has nothing in its detail that would suggest a robbery has occurred. This looks very orderly. It looks very carefully cared for, rolled up there in a place, not a grave robbery, not a place of some fantastic legend, but, date, but John just gives us this detail to say this was a very orderly matter. Now, I, I'm just saying, because when you read some of this other stuff, it gets fantastical. Like, wow, how does anybody believe that when there is no evidence in the Talmud or Jewish rabbinical teaching? What's it trying to do? John's trying to say is, hey, this was an orderly situation here. There was no grave robbery. Nobody broke in here and took the body out. Nobody got him and spirited him away and took him out of here. This was a very orderly matter. And so this matter of the detail here. Now I want to get to quickly, and you can, again, spend some time uh, if you want to on this area. So uh, then Mary, verse 11. Mary is standing outside the tomb weeping. I, I just stopped there when I was looking at that. I thought, okay, um, why the detail? But I, but, I, but I look back through the Gospels. Do you know the person that was every, the person in every Gospel that's at the cross? She is. The disciples aren't. Other people aren't. Jesus' mother Mary's there. But Mary Magdalene is at everyone in Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John. I mean, think about what she had seen, what she had experienced, what she had known, not only by seeing it, but experiencing there. If anyone saw the horror that had seen the crucifixion, it's Mary. If anyone knew the tra trauma that Jesus went through, it was Mary. If anyone had been destined to recognize the terrible pain that Jesus was in, it was Mary, not the disciples. Not the disciples, but Mary. She's standing there weeping. And so I want to get to this as quickly as I can here on this matter, on the message of the resurrection reality. Verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. She wept. She stood there and looked into the tomb. I mean, I don't know that we can imagine enough or understand enough the sense of loss, the sense of sorrow, the sense of pain as she looks into that tomb and realizes he's gone. Not only is he gone physically in terms of he's dead, you know, but he's gone physically. She's weeping and looking into him, and she saw two angels in white sitting on the head and one at the feet. Now she's come back, everybody else has left, and now these messengers, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
Now, again, I, my mind doesn't work always. I'm thinking, are you guys really angels? <laughs> I mean, don't you know what's happened here? It, 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 it speaks at least of John's account of this, maybe, that, that this idea is that the angels knew that Jesus had said over and over he's going to be raised from the dead. Is this, in some sense, a sort of a rebuke to say, weren't you listening? Why are you weeping? Now, it doesn't mean that trauma doesn't cause us to not be able to think. Becky works in congregational care, and she says to me all the time, Cliff, uh, when, when people are in trauma, when they have tough times, it's hard to think straight. And I said, I, I know that. I mean, I, with my dad, when he, was, when he was ill, I would go to the doctor's office meetings with him, and I'd be stunned at what he said the doctor said. I said, were we in the same room? But, but the angels say, why are you weeping? Notice here, why, why, why are you weeping? She said, because they've taken away the, my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. When she turned this, she said, saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was him. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, please let me know where they live, and I will take him away. What devotion? And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Mabani, which means teacher. When, when, look at that now. When, when did she recognize him? Said her name. Think about that for a second. There are sad to be some intonation or some way of saying Mary. And instantly she knew who it was. I, I've looked at this and thought of this and meditated on it different times. Because I think there have been some times in my life I never heard the words, but I had a sense in which Jesus said to me, Cliff, Cliff. Some of y'all have had that, I know. Some of y'all have walked with Jesus. And that, that identifying not of Jesus, but identifying us, that he knows me. I remember praying one time. I had a, a situation. I was really going through difficult, and I thought, Lord, I don't know what I can do here. I don't know, of course. And, and I, I just had, I had a sense. I didn't hear anything, but I just had a sense where the Lord said, Cliff, I know. Cliff. I know. I, I just wonder in the message of the resurrection is that Jesus knows our name. And when Jesus knows your name, it makes all the difference in the world. I'm not suggesting just some mystical event. I'm not, I'm not suggesting just some, some, some out of body experience, but the idea that Jesus knows your name. He knows who you are. Now I want to hit this here and finish because it says this. Then he says, Rabboni, or that means my teacher, or my, my, it doesn't mean just teacher. Rabboni means my teacher, or my, my, my great one. And Jesus said, stop clinging to me, for I've not ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing these matters to the disciples. I have seen the Lord, and he said these things to her. Now, I grew up in a church or when I was a kid. Maybe I just interpreted this. But when I read this or I heard this, people said to me, 
Jesus said, don't touch me because I haven't ascended to the Father. Why? Because he's got some kind of body weird thing, right? Anybody ever hear that? That sense, like, don't touch him because he hadn't ascended to the Father yet. And, you know, uh, uh, you might defile him. I heard that. I don't know if the people in my church were nuts or uh, I grew up in East Texas. Could have been. I don't know. But anybody else hear that? That, that kind of notion or understanding? That's impossible to be the case. That, we'll get to this later, but it's impossible. Jesus doesn't have something you're going to defile because you're holding on. And he, Jesus used the word clinging here. Clinging. It isn't you're going to defile him because he says to Thomas later, what? Touch me. Put your, hand, put your finger in my hands. So what's he saying to her? What's he saying to her? Stop clinging to me. Look, she's lost him once. She's not going to lose him again. Jesus is addressing her fear. I'm not leaving Mary. Stop clinging to me. I'm not leaving. It can't be his body because he tells people to touch him and see if I don't have flesh and bone. And he takes a piece of fish to eat it in front of him. He's addressing her fear. I'm not leaving. And I reflected on that thought. Jesus in his glorified body, he's basically saying to Mary, relax. I mean, think of the loss she feels, that he dies. She loses the tomb. They can't find him in the tomb. This sense of loss is overwhelming. And she's saying, you're not leaving now. And Jesus is saying to her, I'm not leaving, Mary. I've not yet ascended to my Father. I will. But let me ask you to consider a couple of things. This need that she has, and I, I get it. This, this need to not lose him again, to not have him leave, to, to have his presence in her life. I, I wrote in some notes here, uh, or had Becky working with me while I was driving some. It said, Jesus is answering her immediate concern. What is that? To not leave her again. But I want to say this. If we follow out the rest of the resurrection appearance, Jesus is answering her ultimate concern. Jesus is answering her ultimate concern about this because he said later in Matthew 28, 18, I will never leave you or forsake you. Th think about it. He, he's answering her immediate need. You bet. Stop. I, I haven't ascended to the Father. I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. But ultimately, Jesus is answering this notion, I'm never going to leave you. Ever. A friend of mine and I were talking about this. That, that this idea of, of Jesus' commitment to us to never leave us. Now, that works out differently now, doesn't it, than when you have a physical, physical presence of Jesus. You can see he's here. But he said here to Mary and in the Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Hebrews 13 says the same thing. Be careful about the love of money for he who said to you, I will never leave you I will, or ever forsake you. I mean, this, this is incredible about the resurrection now that he can be with us. Jesus is saying, I'll not leave you. Now, let me give you an idea here that has been working through my brain cells. I think I'm okay with it, but 
the thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, it's elders or leadership. <laughs> I'm going to read this here. Jesus is the one member of the Trinity who will forever be identified with a body. Just let that sink in for a second. Jesus is the one member of the Trinity who will forever be identified with a body. His body was raised. He bears a body now. When we see him someday, we will see him face to face in a body. 1 John 3, we'll get there one day, where it says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God, and that's what we are. And yet we do not know what we shall be, but when he appears, we will be like him. What? In this glorified, resurrected body that Jesus bears for now all eternity. So the message is, I'm not leaving you now, and I will never leave you. The message of this ascension or this message of this is I am here with you in a body and I'll forever be in a body. And then notice what he says. Tell my brothers or my brethren. This again is, a, is a, as I've scoured, you know, you look at uh, other religions in the ancient Near East, you know, in Mesopotamia. I can't find any evidence, you know, could be I haven't got everything, but I, I've uncovered as much as I can that no God would ever consider calling their followers brothers or friends. Ever. There's no evidence of that. Jesus here says, go tell my brothers what this resurrected Lord is my big brother. This one who is now raised from the dead is my brother. And he says, I'm going to my father and your father, my God, and now your God. The message here of the resurrection is that we are now brothers, if you will, not Lord and master only. You know, I mean, we know he's our Lord and master because of love, but he's our what? Brother. He's our brother and our daddy. He's our brother and our daddy. And he is going to his father and our father. He's going to his God and our God. So the message of the resurrection, if you will, is this understanding that God has now brought about this understanding. I'm not leaving you ever. Now, I, I know that sounds good. I, I say sometimes in our teaching, in our songs, we end up out kicking our coverage. You know, we say things or do things that sometimes we say, how does that work in my daily life? What I want to suggest to you is the message of the resurrection here is that Jesus is saying to Mary and to all of us, I'll never leave you. Ever. I mean, I know people in this room could say, I, I know that for a fact. I know some of us sometimes we go, okay, I believe it, but where are you? <laughs> right? I believe it, but, but, but where are you? But Jesus is saying here, stop clinging to me. So I want to ask you to think about something. We'll apply this in this way. 
what do you do or what do I do that would be considered clinging? What is it that you do or I do that considers clinging that I do in order to make Jesus stay? What is it? I think in my life, I'll just be honest with you, in my life, I think what I do to make Jesus stay is I make sure I'm always as good as I can be. Because I'm worried if I'm not good, he won't be with me, right? Anybody with me? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to really be good because if I'm really good, he'll be there. That's my clinging. I think it is. Yeah. Well, it, well, it's an attempt to think that I can control God. I can get him to like me if I do all the good things. So what do we do that is clinging? Or, or is this? Do we, do we think we can do that if we can control all of our life? Any, anybody still trying to control things? Still trying to make sure everything gets in place and we don't have to trust God? What, what, what is it that is our clinging to him? Where I say, I'm going to work at controlling everything. I'm going to keep everything we're supposed to be. And as long as I do that, then things will be good. Just think about it. What, what is it that would be in your life or my life clinging? Clinging. Is it other people? Is it other things? This to me seems to be the message that Jesus wants to give to Mary and wants to give to us. I'm not leaving you. I am never going to leave you. That sounds nuts to me at times. I think if you should leave anybody, you should leave me. Not Miriam or, you know, Leslie. They're nice people. But me, yeah, you should do that. You should get out as fast as you can, right? But the idea here is this. This is the incredible good news of the resurrection. You don't have to hold me here. So what is it that we use to cling? That might be a good question for you to ask yourself this week. Might be a good question for me to ask myself this week. Is it health? Is it money? Is it obedience? Is it control? Is it friends? Is it things? Is it people? What is it that we think keeps Jesus where he needs to be? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, you're bigger than this book. You're bigger than this teaching. You can make yourself known to us in any way you want to. We're available. Would you help us to live out in the reality, the resurrection each and every day and every Sunday as we come back to church that we're reminded and renewed in our understanding that Easter is not just a day. It's now a way. It's not just a day. It's a way for us to live. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. We'll do some more resurrections.